You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studios in Huntsville, Alabama. Today we are talking a little about Elon Musk, some of the fallout from the tornadoes in Kentucky, updates from the Starbucks Workers United campaign. We are also talking to an infectious disease specialist about COVID and the vaccines and more on today's program. Uh, if you want to be a part of the program today, we've got a phone number. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail through the week if you're not able to listen to the program live. Uh, And if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time we wrap here on the radio, uh, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. Anywhere anywhere you find anything online. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Everywhere you get your podcasts. We're on YouTube as well. Uh, if you find, if you consume media online, we are there. Um, remember that your support and the support of our sponsors helps keep us on the air. If you want to become a sustaining member or make a one-time donation to our December fundraiser, you can go to unionly.io slash o slash TVLR to make a donation. That is unionly.io slash o slash TVLR. If you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. Um, And last night, we... uh, Last night, we, we... me and David were on a fundraising stream for Kellogg's workers. Um, Max from the Working People podcast, editor-in-chief of the Real News Network, as well as Mel uh, Buer, host of Morning Riot podcast. Uh, they did a uh, six-hour fundraising live stream for the Kellogg's Workers Strike Fund. Um, Kellogg's workers are still on strike, 1,400 of them, for a fair contract, and uh, they were able to raise $15,000 for their strike fund, Uh, more than $15,000. I was able to join uh, about 9.45. I was on there for about 30 minutes or so. It was a lot of fun. Uh, David was doing the the behind-the-scenes kind of producerial work, making sure the Zoom guests entrances and exits were smooth um stuff like that 
He's a, he's a tech whiz, definitely. And that's really cool. And you can still donate to the fundraiser if you find um, the Working People podcast on Twitter, Working Pod. It's at Working Pod. Um, you, can, uh, uh, you can still donate to the fundraiser. And if we could get them to 20000 before they distribute the funds, that would be really cool. But 15000 is still a big that, – that is fantastic. That's really great. Um, so I was proud to be able to be a part of that, uh, be able to listen to uh, testimonies from workers actually on the picket line. That was cool. We saw some video live from the picket lines all across the country last night. Uh, some really Really cool guest Marianne Williamson made an appearance the orb queen herself uh, so that was pretty neat I believe Sarah Nelson made an appearance lots of really cool people uh, came on the line to support these striking workers um, and there have been a lot of updates on the Kellogg strike recently. Uh, for example, the oh was it the Nebraska governor? The Republican Nebraska governor, I believe it was a Republican governor, I think it was in Nebraska, condemned Kellogg's for threatening to permanently replace the striking workers. A Republican governor. I mean, that is that is fantastic. Um, you know, we love to see politicians uh, standing up for working people, um, and I don't care what they're, uh, you know, I, I don't care what's motivating them to do that. As long as they do it, then that's good. Um, so so we definitely appreciate that as working people ourselves. Um, Joe Biden did the same thing, President of the United States. He issued a condemnation of the Kellogg's Corporation for threatening to permanently replace BCTGM striking union members last week. Um, so they have gotten a lot of support from high places um, across the country, and that's really good. We love to see that, um, and potentially as a result of that, there's been a new tentative agreement recently uh, that was just announced yesterday in the Kellogg's fight, um, and uh, it's gotten some mixed reception the workers will be briefed on it over the weekend, and they will vote on Monday. We'll see how that vote goes, and of course, we're going to support their decision either way. I gave a presentation on strikes to the Birmingham DSA um, a couple of nights ago, and one of the things that I mentioned is that striking, there's a huge cost to striking. Of course, I mean, like, intuitively, people understand this, because you go without a paycheck, right? You go without a paycheck, you lose your health insurance from the company. This is a big risk. This is a big risk that workers take to stand up to corporate greed. And um, and so I have seen people on Twitter, uh, some, you know, left-wing online activists, uh, condemn working people for accepting contracts that they felt were not good enough that they felt as outside observers <laughs> who are not affected materially at all um directly anyway they're affected as a class uh, as, as members of the working class because um they're uh, an injury to one is an injury to all and um and there are ramifications of course when we begin a race to the bottom it's bad for everybody 
but the people most directly affected by contracts are the people that work under them, right? And that's, uh, you know, that makes sense. And I've seen people condemn working people for accepting contracts that they didn't feel like was up to snuff. Uh, we don't want to do that here on this program. We want to support workers uh, getting the best deal that they believe they can. And um, But we also want to encourage them uh, to fight to the extent that they feel they can, to the extent that they feel uh, they can get a better deal, they should. Um, uh, they, they should take as much risk as they feel comfortable taking. Um, and so we, we want to support them in that. I will note, just for the record, that More Perfect Union has obtained text messages from executives or emails, emails from executives bragging about the new tentative agreement uh, to end the 10-week strike. The executive said, We have reached a tentative agreement with a union. We will brief everyone at tomorrow's meeting. In short, overall bucket of money stays the same, just shifts of money from one bucket to another. No gain overall for the workers with three more weeks on strike and no income. No ratification bonus and we were we are confident that this will pass. So that's that's not a good sign from the executive. But I, I will say though, I will say for playing devil's advocate on behalf of the tentative agreement, Connor Lewis uh, from Strike Wave, you can find him at the House Red on Twitter, said that it might not be a good idea to let the bosses characterize the agreement before workers have ever had a chance to see it. He said that, uh, I mean, he's a longtime union staffer. He's been in many, many, many negotiations. And he said that even where a contract is clearly a win for the workers, when the bosses turn around, they will try to spin it as a win for management to the executives and to the corporate board and things like this. So maybe that's that particular executive trying to spin things um, so that it looks better to his peers. Right. Um, I, I think that's a really good point, Jacob. And I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. That, I mean, obviously a, a comment like that from management is worthy of consideration. But right. like you said, and like Connor pointed out, it very well could be an intentional way to craft the narrative here and to... Uh, look like he's winning in terms of his board of directors and, and like you said, his exactly. peers in management. So, you know, you can't take that um, just 100% on its face. Exactly. Um, but then on the other hand, going back to the other hand, there is a local BCTGM president. I forget his name, but uh, he is being quoted as saying this tentative agreement is a Trojan horse and we should not accept it. So, you know, look... Uh, they're going to be briefed on the details of the contract this weekend, and they will be voting on Monday, and we will report to you um, the results of the tentative agreement on next week's show. Um, we will uh, report that out to you as soon as we have it, and um, we're going to support them whatever they choose to do. Right, um, and, and I think so. you, you've done a good job in laying out that it's easy to critique from the outside looking in. I mean, we're not working at Kellogg's. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. don't fall under that contract. So, um, you know, it's easy for us to have our own opinions. And, and of course, we do. Right. Uh, personally, you know, five-year contracts, I think, are, are a little bit long. Uh, <laughs> not right. what I would prefer, necessarily. But, right. um, 
what you open the show with, though, maybe some of the best uh, takeaways is that you're getting a lot of public support for these striking workers that you probably would not have seen this time last year. Uh, certainly, right. you know, a few years ago uh, to get standing politicians from even Republican uh, yeah. quarters and to have um, just random kids on the Internet <laughs> supporting the effort and their own ways of trolling the company with fake applications. Mm-hmm. I think those are all good things that show the labor movement's resurgence, um, not just in workshop workplace activity, but in like the public narrative and consciousness. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, um, I mean, that's it, it, it is very cool to see, you know, see the things that are happening happen um, and see workers taking center stage in their lives uh, collectively and uh, not allowing the bosses to dictate the terms of their lives. Um, and that's something that unions allow people to do. And that's something that we hope more people uh, consider doing as a result of listening to this program, as a result of seeing workers across the country uh, take charge and take ownership ownership of their lives, um, because uh, the ownership of their lives, the ownership of their production, ultimately, um, morally and ethically um, and rightfully belongs to them. And it has been stolen from them by uh, bosses, by owners, by people who run our society currently. And it's ours, rightfully. It's the people that do the work. The people that make the world run ought to decide how the world is run. And so we support, uh, we are very glad to see people taking uh, taking charge, taking ownership of their lives. We are going to be right back, and we're going to talk some about the Time Magazine's Person of the Year. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison and Adam Keller. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Welcome back. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. Uh, Elon Musk 
has been chosen as Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Inexplicably, it seems to me. Um, Now, to be fair to Time Magazine, if one wanted to do such a thing, the Person of the Year is not designed to be the best person of the year, quote-unquote, simply the most influential. And okay, fine. You know, let's uh, let's make that stipulation. Uh, But... If you read the profile from Time Magazine, it's really difficult to see it as something other than an endorsement and saying that they're the best person of the year, basically. And so it's certainly strange uh, for him to receive that in a year where probably one of the single most talked about things, for, for good or for bad, you know, depending on where you're reading it, mostly for bad where you're reading it, has been working people. Uh, the Great Resignation, workers' refusal to, to toil in unsafe, underpaid conditions um, has been the subject of many an article. There have been a historic number of workers going on strike, historic in modern terms anyways. Um, and, and uh, you know, I mean, how many times do we see these types of stuff? How many times do we, I mean, just in casual conversation with people, especially who are like brainwashed and have have these worms (laughs) in their brains, basically, saying, oh, you know, nobody wants to work anymore because of government checks or or whatever, Uh, you know. The workers, their decisions seem to be driving the narrative at least, at least much more in the year 2021 than they have in a very, very, very long time. Uh, we've seen nurses uh, you know, pl- uh, uh, take center stage as we go into year two of the pandemic. Um, we've seen teachers take center stage as they stand up against unsafe working conditions and uh, repression of their speech and academic freedom. Uh, we've seen uh, you know, service workers, like I said, take center stage um, against, you know, uh, I mean, anybody who's worked a service job knows how terrible it is and say, no, I'm not going to put up with that. Workers are organizing in the fast food sector for the first time, uh, at least being federally recognized and winning union contracts for the first time in a long time, basically ever. We're seeing manufacturing workers for the first time since globalization and deindustrialization stand up and win and strike and win big. John Deere workers got a 20% raise. They're getting a 20% raise after their strike over the course of the contract. They're getting a 10% raise starting off the bat and then two 5% raises before the end of the contract, as well as an $8,500 bonus for signing the contract and like $5,000 bonuses, $5, bonuses every year, something like that. I mean, like, workers are taking center stage in a way that they have simply have not in the public imagination in a very long time. And so for an individual business owner to be the quote-unquote person of the year really is 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 absurd. Um, and, I mean, the award itself, person of the year, it really plays into that sort of capitalist kind of great man mythology, you know, that that these, uh, these great men, these business owners, are better than everybody else. 
that they have better ideas than everybody else, that they are the ones who are going to lead us into a new era, and that there are saviors, that we shouldn't look to anybody to better our lives except the elites, except these special snowflakes at the top of our society. And there is a there's a cult of personality uh, that grows around some of these figures, and uh, Musk in particular. Yeah, now you have to wonder how much of that's astroturfed. Uh, you know, when you get to the level of an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, you can afford to have bots and uh, people paid to literally praise you on the internet. Oh yeah, uh, which we have some evidence that that's what happens here. But you know, it it's true. There there is something of a cult of personality around figures like him, and like you said, it's sort of the. Uh, Gilded Age, 19th century uh, style of revering these, quote unquote, captains of industry. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, don't look towards your neighbors, your community. Don't look towards the potential of the government and state power. We should look towards, you know, these uh, these elite saviors. And it's uh, yeah, it is very reminiscent of the Gilded Age era. It seems like in so many ways we are uh, reverting back to that. Uh, but I think, as you said, 2021, you know, I, I hope that we look back on 2021 as a time of great transition and uh, sort of the fracturing of this economic system we've had over the last, you know, about five decades or so. Because uh, like you said, workers are coming back into the consciousness as a movement, which is something that has been steadily crushed over the past five decades uh, in this neoliberal era of pro-markets, anti-union, globalization. And I think, uh, you know, there's some evidence to show that perhaps that time is coming to an end. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done. This is just the early stages uh, of such a change. But, yeah, I I think, uh, you know, Time Magazine and a lot of the uh, mainstream corporate press is very out of touch with what's happening uh, out in the real world. And this is just another example, frankly. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. The the idea that he got where he is because he's some, like, super special person as opposed to – I mean, look, in the beginning – when he started, no doubt there was a certain amount of work that he did that was probably good. I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm not in that industry, but uh, you know I mean sure let's let's stipulate that he did good work and and even stipulate that he does good work today and even stipulate that in so far as supervision and administration and administration is a legitimate function of a of a person which i which i think it is i mean uh, you know i'm a bit biased because administration is my job i you know i manage projects right i manage uh multi-million dollar projects projects that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars okay that's my job and i and I think you have to have that. I, I think that that administration of funds, administration of workload, uh, uh, keeping keeping tabs on scope, schedule, and cost. These are all important and legitimate functions, especially when you get into into big projects, big organizations, big companies, big government agencies. Okay, um, but does that mean that he should be 
the richest person in the world and single-handedly be able to uh to to control the way that industries go as opposed to having the people that are actually doing the work the engineers that are actually making these innovations uh be compensated for that work or have the decision-making authority to decide where the industry goes or decide where funds ought to be allocated of course not of course not the people that do the work should have the decisions and 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 he should have decision-making authority to the extent that he actually does work but to the extent that he simply owns a company that has become more and more successful by virtue of the work that his employees have done well, and that doesn't a, make any sense. That you know, doesn't make any sense for him to have that authority on that basis. Right. And, and of course, it's not just the work that his uh, employees have done. Uh, there's a fair amount of stock speculation that comes with his wealth in a particular. Fair, yeah, a fair uh, amount of stock speculation and government subsidization. From- <laughs> right. Right. So and but what you're what you're touching on, though, I think is such a, an important point that is so often ignored, especially uh you know, in the media, and that's the concentration, not just of wealth, but of the power that comes with that wealth. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we've, we've seen this trend over the past five decades where not just wealth and income has concentrated, but the power that comes with that. And what that means is that in the year 2021, you look around and you have what amounts to a handful of individuals and corporations that control the vast majority of our political economy. They control employment, resource extraction, resource distribution, the production and distribution of goods and services, uh, and the ability to purchase and lobby and sway government officials that comes with that. You know, that is not a democratic society. Uh, when you're talking about what amounts to a few hundred people in a country out of, of 300 million uh, who can single-handedly sway the way in which we live, our material lives every day, uh, right. that is uh, a concentration of power that um, you know we haven't seen in quite some time. It, it, we've seen that reversal of the gains we made as a labor movement. Uh, in the early, you know, or the first part of the 20th century, we've seen the, the gains we made in terms of social services from the state has been steadily eroded to the point now where even even among mainstream Democratic Party circles, there's not much belief that state power can be used in a positive way to impact people's material lives. Yep. Yep. Uh, we are going to talk some about Alabama legislative pay raises, teacher pay raises, tornadoes and worker safety, and more on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 
888-985-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Work sucks, we know, but you can make it better by organizing with your fellow workers. For more information, call or text the Huntsville Industrial Workers of the World at 256-651-6707. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. Uh... We are, um, we just wrapped up a conversation about Elon Musk being the Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And next, we wanted to talk about Alabama legislators are getting a 4.3% raise to $54,000, while teachers are getting a 2% raise to... All the way up to forty-one thousand seven hundred dollars. Okay, uh, <laughs> I mean, wow. Uh, I will say, I mean, just uh, somewhat controversially, I think that legislators should be well compensated. I think that that is it is reasonable for legislators to be well compensated because um and and you know look i know that it feels good to say you know screw politicians right they don't deserve anything um and they uh you know uh, i hope they you know they can pound sand and take zero dollars for all i care um and look that feels good and for the majority of of them that's like what they're worth right <laughs> republicans and democrats that's about what they're worth is zero dollars but uh, if you had a very low salary for elected officials, um, that would preclude working people from trying to become their own representatives. To the extent that such a thing happens, to the extent that such a thing can happen, having a low salary makes it even more difficult for working people to justify quitting their jobs or putting their careers on hold to run for office. So, I mean, we do need to have a decent salary. And and so $54,000 to be a state legislator, which once you add per diem and travel, it probably ends up being you know, reasonably more than that. Oh, oh it certainly does. <laughs> and, and it's worth pointing out that this is for approximately a about three months of work out of the right. Year. Uh, of right. course, there's always the risk of special sessions, and, and that's not to say that you know legislators do not do work outside of the session. They should. Uh, they, they should, should be uh, meeting with constituents, responding to constituent phone calls and emails, um, all the things that you know you're taught in elementary school. Uh, your representatives are supposed to do uh, as as representatives of the community, but. You know, generally speaking, you're talking about three months or less right. away from home. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's, uh, you know, principally I'm not opposed to a $54,000 salary for state legislators. Uh, but what I am opposed to <laughs> is politicians setting their pay above teachers. 
I am definitely opposed to politicians saying it is okay that I get paid $54,000 a year plus per diem, plus travel, uh, plus expenses, while educators make $41,700 a year. That is nonsense. That's absolutely nonsense. And I don't pretend to be a mind reader. I don't pretend to know the thoughts and intentions of the governing majority in the Alabama legislature. But if one were to want to destroy public education, if one were to want to... um, stick money in people's pockets that profit off of private education, that profit off of charter schools, off of parochial schools, off of uh, these non-public education things. If I were to want to do that and destroy working Alabamians' ability to get an education as a right as a citizen of this state, that's what I would be doing. That's what I would be doing. If that's what I wanted to do, I would make teacher pay so low that it is uh, almost not worth the degree. I mean, you pay as much for a college degree in this country, or more uh, for a college degree in this country, than your salary. Right. and That's insane. I mean, and I think uh, it's also worth noting that the starting salary that we're referring to at around 41 k it just now got into the 40s, uh, I believe, last year, uh, last school year. So, you know, it was lingering down in the 36, you know, to 39 range for most of the last decade. Uh, I know my first year as a classroom teacher, it was around 36. Uh, and like you pointed out, Jacob, that's, you know, if you're lucky, you got your degree for that amount of money. Yeah. If you're, if you're lucky, I know I, I know a fellow that has a hundred thousand dollars in student debt from a math degree at UAH. Yeah, um, and, and something that uh, you know is not necessarily unique to the teaching field, but is something that maybe not everyone realizes that uh, to become a teacher, you're going to spend an entire semester before you graduate and walk across that stage with your degree and get your, you know, Alabama teaching certificate. You spend a whole semester as a student teacher or an intern. Right. And, you know, it's it's kind of interesting in that you are essentially paying the university to do a full time <laughs> job. Right. So not only do you have all the commitments of a full time job, you're there five days a week. You're you know, you show up when the teachers do and you, you leave when the teachers do. And uh, believe me, that is not from eight to three. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, and so you are doing the full-time teaching load, full-time responsibility, full-time schedule, while also, you know, coordinating with your supervisor as an intern uh, in the college to make sure you're getting your credit for that, you're working with your coordinating teachers, all while still paying full-price tuition for this whole semester. And all this, uh, you know, teachers making an abysmal salary while now going through... Uh, year two of a pandemic where, contrary to what you will hear on some shows, was not a vacation for teachers. And we can see this basically objectively 
because if it was a vacation for teachers, if they had such an easy time of this, then more than half of educators in Alabama would not be considering quitting. We would not have historically high resignation rates in our schools. We had 300 staff in Huntsville City Schools alone resign in the last school year. In Huntsville City Schools alone. How can you how can you justify saying that this past year, year and a half, going on two years, has been a vacation when they make below, when you start off making below the state's median salary for being a college-educated worker with oftentimes tens of thousands of dollars of student debt. And, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's obscene. It's obscene that our educators are are being taken advantage of this. And uh, so, you know, the way to change that, of course, is for educators to organize and, um, you know, and, and for their communities to support them where they do so um, and for them to have more control of of their uh, uh, of their profession and um, and of their working lives, because their working conditions are our children's learning conditions. And um, the there's a there, there's an Alabama education lab that has been doing a lot of really good work. And, and Adam's going to be diving into that over the next couple of weeks and maybe he can and maybe he can give us some 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 good in-depth analysis on that from the perspective of somebody who worked in the teachers union and who was a rank and file educator but um, one of the key takeaways that the Alabama Education Lab uh, came away from looking at quote unquote high flyer schools which are schools in high poverty areas which had above the national average proficiency rates in math and science and reading and, and such and such um, was that here's here crazy a crazy thing uh teachers take control <laughs> teachers have control of their classrooms and they're supported in the things that they need that's not that's not happening in so many schools across our state right now teachers are being uh disrespected not well compensated being told that they're on vacation being told that uh that that you know uh, that they're indoctrinating children, um, and and that and that they don't care about their students. Which obvious, like I mean, why would you go into education if you don't care about the right. next generation? I mean, it just it it doesn't it doesn't make sense. It, yeah, and and you mentioned those those last two things. I, I want to tease out a little bit because uh, for one thing, the, the indoctrination and this sort of uh, manufactured hysteria over critical race theory and, and other curriculum issues. That's not entirely new. I mean, we've had textbook wars for decades, uh, you know, whether it's about teaching evolution in the classroom right. um, or, or teaching, um, you know, any sort of diversity. Uh, so that's not new, but it has been reinvented and, and kind of reinvigorated. And yes, some of that is in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and, and in response to, I think, Folks uh, clinging to old ideology, seeing it start to fracture, especially among young people who aren't quite as bigoted as uh, they should be, you know, in their eyes, quite right. frankly. Um, so some of that is in response to changing conditions culturally. Some of it is yet another way. Uh, I think, you know, like 
Trojan horse, that phrase was used earlier about a contract, and I think that is a Trojan horse. Right. Uh, this is a way to stir up angst and um, rage among mm-hmm. far-right elements. It's a way to confuse and scare parents. But what is ultimately going to be behind this is, yet again, the drive to privatize and the drive to put public tax dollars designated for the public education system into private hands, private pockets. Exactly. Ultimately, that's what it all traces back to. And that's not to say that some of these people, um, you know, don't believe in this. Of course they do. There are folks out there who are just, you know, dead set against your children learning that there are people who don't look like them or that perhaps, just maybe, the United States of America was not always the good guy for the past 400 (laughs) years uh, uh, in our history from colonial times onward. So, yes, there is legitimate ideology there, but it's always, always connected to uh, interests who are looking to put the public dollars in their private pockets. Um, And, you know, teachers absolutely care about their students and not just teachers, all educators, you know, that that includes your bus drivers, your cafeteria workers. Um, You know, I heard a very moving interview with some bus drivers in Kentucky uh, this week. And right. they were going around checking on those families and those kids that they know they've, you know, they've built relationships with and checking to see which ones were still alive after yeah. these devastating storms. And those are the type of burdens that uh, our education workers take on and take in their hearts and souls and they feel it. And there's a reason why there's a mental health crisis among education staff, because it's not a job that you simply can clock out and and you know, disappear from your mind and you not think about it. You lay you lay awake at, at, at night in bed thinking about those kids and, and the hardships they're experiencing. You're thinking about the home lives that they have. Um, and, and oftentimes what's happening outside of school for those kids is, is way more uh, impacting on their education performance, quote unquote, than anything you're doing inside the school. You know, as hard as you're trying to reach them, to support them, uh, you as a a school, you as a teacher, even you as a school district, you can't fix poverty. Right, right. And and I think in in our state and in our country, we have um, designated the public school system as sort of the last stopgap measure to just fix all of our social ills. But, you know, Miss Jones, the English teacher cannot reverse the fact that her so many of her students are living in poverty or that so many of her students are being plagued by not just drug addiction, but by the negative impacts of the war on drugs and the fact that they have parents who are incarcerated uh, in a discriminatory way. And on and, you know, and obviously I could go, right, I could right, go right. on here, uh, but I think it is kind of, uh, it, I'm glad you brought it up in terms of the pay raise disparity between legislators and uh, educators. Two uh, percent is, is certainly not enough, and uh, they deserve so much more. And and beyond just salaries, as you mentioned, the working conditions are are really a need to organizing is going to be the solution. Uh, because right now in the state of Alabama, as a teacher, you don't you're guaranteed theoretically thirty minutes free of supervision and teaching responsibilities. You know, so all the time that you have to spend planning your lessons and putting your grades, communicating mm-hmm. with parents, yeah. um, 
going to uh, meeting after meeting, most of them bogus, uh, filling out uh, all sorts of data and paperwork and, you know, responding to dictates from central office and your admin. All this is supposed to happen within a 30 minute window. And oh, by the way, the law has no teeth. So if your school or administrator arbitrarily violates that and takes up your planning period every day of the damn week, they can get away with it. Right. Exactly. So educators, we have to organize. Yeah. Uh, Tornadoes barreled through several states last week, as Adam mentioned, causing untold damage in Kentucky, where the damage was the worst, uh, the worst in the state's history. In fact, the death toll at last count was 77. And even given these dire conditions, bosses in Kentucky and across the path of the storm forced their employees to work, and held them captive. In Edwardsville, Illinois, six workers were killed in the collapse of an Amazon warehouse. Another was injured. The last thing that one of these workers who were killed sent to his girlfriend via text was, quote, Amazon won't let us leave. Bloomberg News has obtained texts from some of these delivery drivers that worked for uh, that worked for contracting companies for Amazon. This fi- we've got to talk about fissuring sometime in the workplace and all this subcontracting nonsense. Where of course the boss is Amazon, but it's really some you know Joe Blow shipping and logistics, whatever. But Bloomberg News has obtained texts from some delivery drivers showing that they were told if they returned with their packages that it would, quote, be viewed as refusing your route and you will not have a job tomorrow. The issue isn't just limited to Amazon, though. Mayfield Consumer Products did exactly the same thing to its employees in Kentucky. At least 15 different employees refused to go home and eight were killed. Or at, at, I'm sorry, at least 15 different employees requested to go home. They were refused that request, and eight were killed during the tornadoes at work where they were not allowed to leave. They were told that if they left, they would be fired. Now, I was told that the government protected workers from abuses like this, and that's why we don't need unions anymore. That's what I was told. And, I mean, technically, workers are protected from uh, refusing unsafe work under the National Labor Relations Act, even as individuals, but we know that this enforcement is mostly non-existent, weak where it exists at all, and always, always after the fact, after workers have been killed or maimed or... um, or fired from refusing unsafe work. This law does not empower workers with the knowledge that they have the right to refuse unsafe work. It does not empower workers with the knowledge that they will be protected if they refuse unsafe work by the government. In fact, most don't know they have that right at all. And the ones that do know that it's BS. The ones that do know that they have a right under federal labor law to refuse unsafe work know that in the, for, in, in, the in, in the course of enforcing the law, if they refuse unsafe work, they will be fired regardless of the law. And that in the course of correcting that mistake, they will go weeks, months, possibly years 
without a salary from the company that they were unjustly and illegally fired from before the government forces them to be reinstated with back pay if they get back pay at all. I mean, and this throws a worker's life into turmoil. It's totally, I mean, it's totally bogus to believe that workers have any real power to refuse unsafe work under the National Labor Relations Act as an individual worker in an unorganized workplace. It's totally bogus. And these workers uh, abiding by these unlawful orders to remain at work shows exactly that. Workers do not believe that they have a real right to refuse unsafe work. And they and I mean they know the reality. They know the reality where people who want to who want to demagogue about how unions are scary and collectivist and and all of this they're going to the, the, these people will uh obfuscate that reality and they don't want you to know that. I mean it, it it's it's crazy but for people that are in favor of government protection of workers, for people that do think that the government should be workers' saviors, there was an attempt in Illinois to strengthen workers' protection through the legislative process. That strengthening of workers' protections would have come in the, um, in the form of a just cause protection law, a law that would say for a worker to be fired from the company that they work for, uh, they have to actually be bad at their job. They have to actually be bad at their job. Um, and uh, or, you know, there has to be some financial reason like there's downsizing or the company is, is going bankrupt or, or things like that. You can't just fire somebody for willy nilly reasons. There has to be a reason. OK, and that that seems reasonable. I think most people, I think most working people would prefer to work in an environment where they felt comfortable knowing that I will not be fired for any reason or no reason at all. I don't think that's a crazy ask. But that law or that bill was shot down by the very same forces that want you to believe that the government is going to protect you. (laughs) I mean, it shows the hypocrisy and the nonsensicalness of this. On one side of their mouth, people will say, oh, don't worry about it. The government's going to save you. You don't have to worry about all of this this talk about organizing among yourselves and taking action into your own hands and being the master of your own life and all of this this crazy, crazy nonsense. You don't have to worry about that because the government the government will save you and then on the other side of their mouth they will say uh they will fight tooth and nail any uh any initiative to actually empower workers to refuse unsafe work to have safer working conditions and they will also fight tooth and nail to uh uh uh, to renege to pull back on any protections that we do have, however flimsy they may be. So, of course, the answer is to organize. Right. And, Jacob, they will also fight tooth and nail to uh, prevent any sort of efforts to decouple your life from employment. And what I mean by that is, as it stands now in our economy, the vast majority of people can only have money through employment. You can only have health care through employment. Uh you know, so you can only have a retirement that's going to, you know, actually provide you some sustenance through employment, right? So 
right. you as an individual, because again, that's all you know. The powers that be want you to see yourself mm-hmm. as as an right. individual, as an individual consumer operating in this marketplace. Uh, your destiny is tied up into your fate as an employee, and uh, as you mentioned, so the. There's a resistance to empowering you as that employee, but there's also the resistance to empowering you as someone who's not an employee, (laughs) right? Uh, right? Because apparently it's it's a radical notion that we should just get health care, being the wealthiest country on the history uh, of planet Earth. uh, That's radical to assume that, you know, we might guarantee someone the the right to a life. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, so I, well, so let's take a case study of we've had two case studies, multiple case studies of workers uh, uh, being forced to work in unsafe conditions, knowing that they don't have any actual real protection from the government um, in non-union environments. Let's take a case study in a union environment. This is a very good article by a Teamster, by a rank-and-file Teamster in Jacobin magazine uh, that was released in May of 2020. Uh, the title is The Day My Coworkers and I Chose Our Survival Over Our Supervisor by Danny Catch. Danny Catch. You should read it. It's a really good article. But the synopsis of this is that he was a Teamster working for UPS in New York on 9-11. And after the second plane hit, he was only blocks away from the uh, from from the explosion at the uh, uh, at the World Trade Center. After the second plane hit the towers, his supervisor told him that if he left, he would be fired. <laughs> that that he did not have the authority to leave. That he did not have the authority to uh, to 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 run away from <laughs> from a collapsing building. I mean, holy crap! Um, and but they knew. Because they had a union that that was nonsense, that he couldn't fire them for that. And so all of the employees left (laughs) while the supervisors stayed then chose a company that doesn't know his damn name. I mean, can you imagine being more pathetic than that? I mean, holy crap. Staying Staying at a UPS delivery center after two planes have hit the World Trade Center out of loyalty to a company that does not know your damn name, that doesn't care about you at all. So the workers, the Teamsters represented workers who had a union contract, knew they had the power within themselves from their organization to flee an unsafe working environment. And so they did. So they did. And they were not fired. And in fact, the manager uh, was disciplined for issuing an unlawful and and an order against the the collective bargaining agreement, and so you know, I mean, this is uh, uh, that's what happens when you actually have the power to refuse unsafe conditions. That's what happens when you're actually protected on the job, uh, when when you know your rights, and when you have a union in your workplace, you 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 know that you uh, that you're protected from this. So that that's something that y'all should y'all should read. It's a very good uh, uh, very good article. And I also put I put it in the chat for YouTube and Facebook, and I'm about to put another one there. Um, NBC actually had a pretty decent article that just came out, uh, shedding some light on that candle factory you referred to in Kentucky, uh, including some of the working conditions there, and the fact that this factory seemed to really specialize in hiring like the most vulnerable types of folks to work there, uh, ex-cons, um, folks coming from Puerto Rico. Really, you know, the the most kind of on the edge 
types of employees you could find who who are going to be desperate uh, and and just therefore more easily exploited. So uh, definitely check those out when you get a chance. Yep. Uh, So before we go to our guest, we are going to run through our favorite segment every week. Last week in Southern Labor, where we bring you everything that happened in the labor movement in the South of the United States. We get this information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, where he compiles all of the information from the entirety of the labor movement across the whole United States. So we give you a snippet of it. We give you what happens in the South. If you want to see, uh, if you want to read about what happened in the rest of the labor movement in the United States, you should subscribe to whogetsthebird.substack.com, written by Jonah Furman. It's very good. Highly recommend it. Could not recommend it enough. It's, it, it's, it's awesome. I love it. Um, and I love Jonah. Jonah does good stuff. So in legislation, the outgoing Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, is proposing a raise for teachers in that state. Uh, as we've seen from Louisiana, New Mexico, governor as governors are making year-end budget proposals, in, uh, the incoming Governor Youngkin campaigned on raising teacher salaries as well. So we'll see if that happens. That would be that would be good, and I would uh, I would uh, be very happy if if Governor Youngkin uh, supported teacher raises. We'll see what what happens when he gets in office. In organizing, thirty-five workers at. Uh, 35 workers at Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery in Nashville are organizing with UFCW Local 1995, and they are calling on supporters to send a letter to the CEO. Adam is going to get that link and drop it in the chat so that you can send a letter to the CEO supporting their unionization there. Six welders and pipe fitters at HVAC company Comfort Systems USA in Montgomery, Alabama, are unionizing with United Association Local 52. Six box office workers at Capital One Hall in Tysons, Virginia, are joining the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stagehand Employees, Local 868. Nine workers at the Seminole Electric Cooperative in Tampa voted 6-2 to to join IBEW Local 108. Five supply room clerks at Fort Bliss, Texas voted unanimously to join Operating Engineers Local 351. Two security guard unions are fighting over 84 guards at HUD at HUD headquarters in D.C., And it was a big week for public sector unionism in Virginia under the still newish collective bargaining law. Richmond, Virginia teachers and Loudoun County teachers in Virginia now have the legal right to negotiate union contracts, which is very cool. In strikes and bargaining, Steelworkers Local 40, after two and a half months on strike at Special Metals in Huntington, West Virginia, say that they think they are close to a contract settlement. That's very much a believe-it-when-you-see-it kind of thing, so give to their strike fund if you can. Unite Here Local 25 is picketing Colonial Williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia, over an expired contract. The American Postal Workers Union has a tentative agreement with the U.S. Postal Service, one of the largest union contracts in the country, covering over 200,000 workers. The ratification vote will be held at some point over the next few weeks. We're going to have to get Shelton, who is the local president of the APWU, uh, uh, on to talk about that at some point. And as I mentioned before, Kellogg's and BCTGM have come to a new tentative agreement with mixed reception. 
The workers will be briefed on it over the weekend and vote on Monday. We'll see how the vote goes. And of course, we will support their decision either way. That is it for our segment last week in Southern Labor. Our guest is on the line, Dr. Mark Elaine Deary. We are going to take a break and talk to him about COVID misinformation on the other side of this break. And we will be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. On the line we have Dr. Mark Elaine Deary. He is an infectious disease specialist out of New Orleans, Louisiana, and I wanted to bring him on the line today because Alabama has the, um, I believe it was the second highest COVID mortality rate, the second highest rate of death from COVID in the country. The only, thank God for Mississippi, as the saying goes, they are the only state in the country (laughs) with a higher rate of death than Alabama from the coronavirus. We also have the third largest uh, share of unvaccinated individuals in the state. So uh, I know that we are on a conservative talk radio station and we have a lot of listeners who do not trust the vaccine and i wanted to bring dr deary on to be as unjudgmental and to be as fact oriented and just we want to level with everybody and bring you some good information and some good places to do more reading if you're not satisfied with our conversation here on the radio today. I know that lots of our members uh, are skeptical about the vaccine. Um, I know people in my life that are skeptical about the vaccine, uh, that are skeptical about COVID in general somehow still after almost a million people dead. So I wanted to talk to Dr. Deary about that, about some of these things. And, uh, and, and you know, like I said, I, I solicited a few questions from my Facebook page and I have probably the majority of my friends on Facebook people that I'm connected with are are conservative people are evangelicals are um people that you know that that uh, uh that do not have the same political opinions as me very very different very different so um I solicited some questions from them if you have any questions or if you have heard any questions from vaccine skeptical people uh then drop them in the YouTube or the Facebook chat. Uh, This is something that I hope we can clip this interview and you can share it with your members and it will be helpful to them in, in, uh, you know, go going through kind of these discussions about what's real and what's not real. Um, because, uh, to be fair to people on this radio station, I don't think I've ever heard anything about, oh, the vaccine is actually bad, but it's always kind of like, oh yeah, you should get the vaccine. Sure. As a throwaway comment before they start attacking um, you know, Democrats and, and Dr. Fauci and things like this. It's always a throwaway comment. So I wanted to actually dive um, uh, into, and I also wanted to kind of 
kind of level out our coverage as well because there are uh, union members at ULA who have, I believe, uh, reasonable medical exemptions that they're that they're fighting for, uh, and that their their company is attempting to terminate them. There's a fellow with leukemia uh, who has had COVID, who his doctor says he should probably not get the vaccine at this point, and uh, the company is trying to fire him. In a workplace with a 97% vaccination rate, the company is trying to fire him. There's another fellow who's been going through chemotherapy for six months. He has cancer. His doctor also said you should probably not get the vaccine at this point. And uh, the company is trying to fire him for that. So, you know, we, we have been on that. We've covered that story. And we've been sympathetic to the workers and antagonistic towards the boss. And so we don't want people to get the impression that we are anti-vaccine or that we're skeptical about the vaccine. We're very much pro-vaccine. We're very much pro-getting vaccinated and all of this thing. And so anyway, Dr. Derry, I very much appreciate you taking the time on this Saturday morning to talk to us about this. I think it's, it's very important. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the first thing, I guess, uh, can you talk to us just generally speaking i've got a couple more specific questions but generally speaking if you come to a vaccine skeptical individual somebody that that thinks that you know this is uh that that it's bad they shouldn't get it it's it's going to hurt them or it's going to be worse than COVID. what are like the first things the first arguments that you say um to these people to try to encourage them to to get vaccinated so first, let me just be very clear that I have stopped doing that. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I I don't care anymore. It's it, it, it has been a year. There have been millions and millions and millions and millions of doses. Billions of people across this planet have been vaccinated. And if after a year, the first dose went in on December 19th. What's today's date? Today's date is December 18th. So almost exactly one year ago today. And so quite frankly, to be perfectly honest, I have stopped. I can't, like, I, I have a, like, I'm an infectious diseases doctor and epidemiologist. I have a very, very, very busy life and schedule and I can't anymore individually one by one, try to undo whatever misinformation that exists inside people's heads. So that's where I'm at right now. But let me answer your question. To be very clear, I try to approach it or I used to or if, if somebody does engage me, which, again, I, I have stopped because, you know, the conversations I had nine months ago or six months ago are very different from the conversations I have now, because nine right. months ago or six months ago, people were still looking to possibly get vaccinated. We're mm-hmm. at a point now with Omicron. This is probably 70 times more infectious than Delta. Delta was 120 times more infectious than Alpha. And Alpha was 50 times more infectious than the strain that emerged out of Wuhan. So we're not playing anymore. And the people who are getting sick from Omicron are those people who are either unvaccinated or those that are vaccinated but not yet boosted. So we're at a point now where we're at, like, I'm talking to people about getting booster doses, right? Mm, So mm, mm -hmm. when do you get booster doses? You get booster doses after six months after your second mRNA vaccine. So, Mm -hmm. like, we're talking about, like, seven months out. (laughs) And Omicron, 
wait for the tidal wave that is going to be Omicron. Omicron is going to, especially with Christmas and New Year's and the holidays, come mid-February, we are going to see a tsunami of cases moving forward. So what do I tell people? Billions of people have been vaccinated. This is incredibly safe. And very likely the studies are very, very clear that people who are the, the people who are not vaccinated are uh, um, uh, the, a predictor of those individuals who are unvaccinated is likely who they voted for in, uh, in, mm-hmm. um, in, in the recent election in 2020. Was it 2020? I can't even remember. Was it? Yeah. Right, it was right. <laughs> um, so, so the, the, uh, if you voted for Trump and if you live in a county that voted for Trump, you have five times the likelihood of mortality. So you are five times more likely to die of coronavirus than if you live in a county that didn't vote for Trump. So this has clearly become politicized and there's no reason for it to become politicized except for we are in a very, very, very dangerous time in our uh, country's history. And we are deeply, deeply divided. And to be perfectly honest, the science is out there. Uh, it, like you said, there's like a throwaway line and then attack Democrats and attack uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Fauci. So I'm like, I don't know what else to say. I'm done. I've spoke for one year. I've created cartoons. I have mm-hmm. uh, I have my own radio program. I, I, I am on TV. I got all three of my vaccinations live on television uh, on the morning local local morning news here in New Orleans. I, I have nothing left to say because I don't know what else there is to say. So um, so there you go. That's that's the right. 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 Question. Well, I got to say, Jacob, before you continue that, I appreciate you just being honest. Uh, and keeping it real with us, because I, I can only imagine the frustration you feel as someone who is an expert in this area. You know, Jacob and I are not. Uh, right. And, and it's frustrating enough <laughs> just on our end to have right. these conversations. So, uh, yeah, appreciate you keeping it real and um, not to digress it too much. But I just got to say it is an interesting strategy to appear like you are killing off your own uh, voting base. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's incredibly like what you know what this shows. And it's a great point. And I'm glad you brought it up because I used to argue all the time, you know, oh, in medicine, we put profits before people and everybody used to get angry with me and they'd be like, oh, don't politicize or don't do this, don't do that. But mm-hmm. what this has shown and what we've known now, because if you look at climate change, we haven't done anything for climate change. And if you look at gun violence, we haven't done anything about gun violence. And you look very, very closely at what happened with uh, the coronavirus pandemic. We haven't done anything. We have responded the worst. This country has responded the worst. Public health science is pretty simple. It's very, very straightforward. And what we have shown is that our culture does not care for people. We do not care for people. We truly put profits in front of people. We put the profits of gun manufacturers. We put the profits of extractors of, of fossil fuels in front of people. And we put the profits of medicine in front of people. And you guys know more than anybody else because this is a show that focuses on labor. You understand more than anybody else about how corporations and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, that, that put profits before people. So yes, this is an incredibly important point. And what this has shown is America 
does not care for people. So when they say that they are pro-life, that's not true. You are not pro-life. And you said that you're on a conservative radio station. So if I'm talking to people who are conservative, great. You are not pro-life. You are being fooled. This is not a pro-life thing, right? If you were pro-life, guns would be banned. If you were pro-life, we would figure out what to do uh, in terms of uh, uh, climate change. And if you were truly pro-life, you and your family would all get vaccinated because the people who are dying are people who are not vaccinated. And the people who are not vaccinated are people who voted for Trump, period. Right. And that's, you know, the 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 death toll among unvaccinated people is something that that is important to emphasize. And it's something that I share occasionally on my Facebook page, um, because, like I said, I do have most most of my family, people that I grew up with. Uh, they're all kind of conservative. I, most of the people that I'm I'm I've been close with are, you know, intelligent enough to have been vaccinated and things like this. But it's worth noting that um, in the last time that I did this was on November 21st. And at that point, 77% of Alabamians hospitalized with COVID-19 were unvaccinated. 77%. Um, despite them only making up 45% of the population. And unvaccinated folks make up an even higher proportion of COVID-19 deaths. The latest information at that point showed that 90%, 9 out of 10 COVID deaths were among unvaccinated folks. Um, and so, you know, uh, nine out of ten, it seems to me, nine out of ten of these deaths that are happening every day among Alabamians, among people that uh, that I live and work uh, and and fellowship with, um, is you know uh, uh, they're dying needlessly, and that's and that's very sad to me as as a person that that you know uh, uh, you know loves people, loves this community, loves the state uh, to see so many people dying needlessly. Um, where can people go? You know, you mentioned that, you know, you've been doing and I've, I've heard some of your interviews. Um, you mentioned that uh, that you've been doing this kind of um, uh, uh, public health outreach for a year on these vaccines. Where can people go to find some of the more remedial type stuff like, OK, help help get them on board with getting vaccinated? Where would they go if they wanted to see what were you, what you were saying then? Well, I mean, is the the easy answer is just, you know, stay away from conservative media and <laughs> go and go to any any mainstream media. And I am no fan of mainstream media. Mainstream media is just basically the marketing arm of corporate America. But right. I will say that mainstream media has gotten it right. So stay away from mm-hmm. conservative media. But the the animations that I was talking about, if you go to noisefiltershow.com, noisefiltershow.com, you'll see two cartoons. You'll see a bunch of animations, HIV, hepatitis C. But the, at the very bottom of the scroll, you'll see two animations that I created one explaining how the mRNA vaccine works and the second one explaining how variants emerge. So if you want to understand how Delta emerges or how Omicron emerges, you'll you'll see that. And like I said, public health science is pretty is pretty straightforward. I wrote the scripts for those variants last February. Mm. In other words, I was it was fairly straightforward to predict that variants were going to emerge. So last February, we weren't talking about alpha. 
We weren't talking about Delta. We weren't talking about Omicron, right. right? We were still talking about the variant that emerged out of Wuhan, right? We call that the wild type virus. So the wild type virus is what we were still talking about. But my the my uh, co-creators, the people who made the cartoons with me, we all were able to predict, we're all public health workers, we were all able to predict that variants were going to emerge. And as a result of that, we wrote those the the variant script last February, and when I watch it now, almost a year later, we I can't believe that how spot on we were a year ago. So right. noisefiltershow.com is the best place to go. But again, again, remember, mainstream media is basically the marketing arm of corporate America. So I don't. I have no love for mainstream media. I started a radio station here in New Orleans because I have no love for mainstream media. But that being said, they've gotten it right. So stay away from, stay away from conservative media and focus on anything. Go to the CDC webpage, watch my cartoons. The vaccines are safe. The vaccines right. are good. And the vaccines will save your life and the life of your family. And one of the things, and I believe it was one of your cartoons that you mentioned, and of course you can see this basically, like you said, everywhere, is that the mRNA vaccines, there's, uh, you know, among people I've heard, there is a hesitance to get vaccinated because, oh, we don't know what's going to happen five years out or 10 years out or whatever, you know, a year out or, you know, um, two years out. The mRNA vaccines in your video and and in other places, uh, it shows that, like, these vaccines don't stay in your system they you're injected and it does the job of you know preparing your body for this disease and then it's all gone right right i mean there's a social media app called snapchat i'm not a big social media person but i'm aware that there's an app called uh, (laughs) snapchat and the way i understand it is that something pops up it's there for 20 seconds or whatever time and then it goes away and it's gone forever right that's how snapchat works that's how the mrna works the actual mrna is a very unstable uh protein it is not it, it is not meant to be um uh, uh stable for long periods of time because mrna the m for mrna stands for messenger and without getting too much biochemistry your dna kicks out the mrna uh, which then goes to a ribosome which is kind of like a 3d printer for a cell and reads those instructions and once those instructions are read the mrna is gone so you have that mrna in your system for minutes maybe an hour before it all dissipates. So those individuals who are saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen in five years. You're the person who's going to likely get COVID and then likely actually develop long COVID or uh, hopefully not, but you may also risk death as well. What about, um, and, and you know, this, this is, again, this is like a remedial question, but why, because there are people that I know that ask this, why are hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin not um, appropriate prophylactics or treatment for COVID? So that's actually a good question, and I like answering that question, all right? So ivermectin is a uh, anti, uh, par- uh, is an antiparasitic medication, and hydroxychloroquine is an antiparasitic medication. If you had a tricycle, would you put gasoline into it? Hmm. Gasoline does not go into a tricycle, okay? Like, it looks like... It's got wheels. It looks got it's got a frame. You know, you put 
try you put gasoline into a motorcycle you wouldn't put you know gasoline into a into a tricycle right so why would you take anti-parasitic medications for an organism that causes an illness that's a virus hmm. you want antivirals right you don't want anti-parasitics the anti-parasitics completely different than antivirals. Antivirals are actually meant for viruses. So just like it doesn't make sense to put gasoline into a tricycle, it doesn't make sense to fight a virus with antiparasitic medications. All right. That, 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 I think, I think <laughs> you that can't get sense. more clear yeah, than yeah, that. Right. What about um, what about people that have natural immunity? Uh, there was one person that said that her mother is very uh, anti-vax and her argument is that she had covid a couple months ago um and, and so she shouldn't have to get the vaccine what is uh you know right. what so yeah it's a good question and i and i answer this question all the time as well so a couple things one is when you get the vaccine you have a standard response in terms of your immune response. We know how much immunity you're going to build. And what has been shown through clinical trials is that when you get the shot, you will build up a level of immunity that will protect you from severity of disease from COVID, okay? Now, people who have, are quote unquote naturally immune, you know, they, they got immunity from being infected, we don't know how much virus they got. Therefore, we don't know how much immunity they have built. So not all immunity is the same. Okay. So the, the issue here is that we want you to take the shot because we want you to have a standardized response to the uh, vaccine. Now, that being said, it has been pretty clear that if you've had COVID and you've had one dose of the mRNA vaccine, you have the same immune response as somebody like myself who never had COVID, but had two vaccines, who had two doses. Mm -hmm. So, and the same thing is, is if for a booster. So if you were vaccinated, if you got COVID and then got two doses of the mRNA vaccine, you have a quote unquote booster uh, immune response. The point is, is that multiple studies have shown that if you rely on natural immunity, if you rely on natural immunity and are not vaccinated, the likelihood for you to get reinfected and uh, possibly uh, suffer the consequences, uh, specifically mortality, uh, is quite high. So uh, we're going to go into overtime for the first time ever. Uh, we're going to stay online. Um, we've gone off the air on WVNN. I had some other questions uh, from folks that I wanted to, to ask you as well that are, are there maybe a little bit a little bit more advanced, let's say, for people that, <laughs> you know, nor normal folks that they are like, you know, oh, yeah, I've gotten the vaccine, but I just have a couple questions. So. Hey, Jacob, before you dive into that, uh, if you don't mind, I'd just like to kind of respond to something the good doctor said that I think uh, really resonates. Um, if I go back a little bit, you mentioned about the what, what it shows about our culture uh, in the United States and the fact that we have had the worst response by any like objective kind of measurement, however, whatever lens you want to view it through, whether it's uh, a public health lens, uh, a worker lens, there's really no dispute that the United States has 
totally botched this. Um, you know, just a few days ago, I was listening to what's the uh, NPR econ marketplace marketplace. You know, and they were talking about some of the fallout from from the pandemic here as compared to Europe. And just as like a throwaway line, it was mentioned how, uh, you know, believe it or not, in most European countries, workers salaries were subsidized throughout the entirety of the shutdown, quote unquote. Um, And and that's something that I think uh, it's hard to undo what has been done. And this entire pandemic response was was, you could argue, sabotaged from the beginning by pitting so many people uh, again. You know, you're pitting people's interest as an individual, but also as a member of a community where our health is all tied together. And you're pitting that health interest versus your interest to simply survive in a market economy. And so, you know, I think that really uh, goes to the root of of so many of the issues we're dealing with still now in 2021, about to be 2022, is that nearly two years ago, you you basically forced folks uh, in many cases to jeopardize their health in order to maintain their rent their insurance, their groceries, um, and vice versa. You had people who were scared enough of their health that they were willing to leave their jobs, and and we've seen that in record numbers. But the truth is none of that had to happen. Those were all deliberate policy choices in the United States of America, the wealthiest economy on Earth in the history of this planet. It's not – I don't think it's that – uh, radical of an idea that we could have clearly subsidized workers' paychecks to get us through the the worst of this pandemic. And had there been that sort of large-scale response, the sort of large-scale response that we saw our government provide during World War II, uh, right. we know it's possible because we've done it before. Um, you know, that could have been such a game-changer and, and I just wonder what our statistics would look like now, all this time later, mm. had we done this thing even half-assed the right way, you know, in February and March of 2020. And I don't know if there's anything for you to respond to there, but I just had to get that off my chest because sure. uh, yeah, yeah. I think it was so, uh, I, I just yeah, I really resonated and I'm glad you really hammered that home. Yeah, no, I mean, why are we the wealthiest nation in the world or the history of this world is because we continually and consistently F over labor and workers in this country. Mm. That what where did the rest of the world and the and the rest of the world. Yeah. Where 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 did that wealth accumulation come from? It doesn't, you know, if, you know, we can't even get, think about what's going on right now. Listen, I, I am not a Democrat any way, shape or form. I identify right, as a right. socialist. I'm a very open socialist. Okay, let's be very clear about this. But look at the Democratic Party right now uh, in D.C. There is a voting rights act that's on the table. They need 51 votes to pass this and they need to eliminate the filibuster. The politics of today are such that they can't even uh, they, they, they can't even do the things that will prevent their demise. If that Voting Rights Act is not passed, 
we know what's going to happen. We all you live in a in a conservative state. I live in a conservative state. We are going to see uh, uh, more voting restriction laws come down the line more and more. And we still have uh, 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 cinema, uh, Senator Cinema and Senator, Senator Manchin, who are opposing the filibuster reform for, for this Voting Rights Act. We can't do like you really expect that corporate America is going to respond to to labor? No, not a chance in the world. They accumulated that wealth for a reason, right? They were able. To, my my brother lives in Germany. And he tells me what it's like being a worker in Germany, right? He's a graphic artist and he's a musician in Germany. And he tells me about what his life is like there, right? And so, no, you, the, 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 the politics of today is completely paralyzed. You can't even get Democrats to even do the right thing that will continue to keep them in office. You know, you said- Right, their own self-preservation- that cannot exactly even right. be so fulfilled in opposition they, they, to hundred percent. Right. So when you say, you know, look at how the voters are dying, right? They're killing off their voters, right? Republicans are basically killing off their voters, right? It, that doesn't seem smart at all. But when you look at the Democratic Party, they're not even able to preserve like like any if you and I were in office, we'd be running to get that Voting Rights Act in, in, in place right. so that we would continue to actually be in office, complete self-preservation. But they can't even do that. And, and let's just be very clear. President Biden is the worst president ever. Remember what he said? Remember why we were supposed to vote for him? We were supposed to vote for President Biden because he was going to get Republicans to vote with him. Remember when he (laughs) said, I'm going to get Republicans to vote with me. He can't even get Democrats to vote with him. Okay, so no, this is a good thing. It's a good thing that the primary voters chose to be so realistic. Yeah. yeah, Right. And and be pragmatic (laughs) and go with Joe Biden. Uh, Those of us who were supporting (laughs) Bernie were just pie in the sky and oh, nothing was going to get done. And I sit here a year later wondering just what the hell has been what's been done. What has been done? Because I'm seeing uh, very little. And, uh, you know, the paralysis in D.C. has not changed a bit as far as I can tell, even with, you know, a right wing Democrat president, uh, even with the Democratic Party uh, controlling both chambers. There's no movement. And And, uh, for me, personally, look, look what passed. mm -hmm. What passed was the corporate dominated build back better. Right. The one point five trillion. But right. The hard infrastructure where which was basically a giveaway to corporate America. Look what didn't pass. Right. What didn't pass was the so-called soft infrastructure, which was going to help you and I. That was going to make by soft. I mean, human beings. Right. Uh, I I mean, I think we we need to be clear about that. And uh, I can speak, you know, for my family and what we are facing and it's what millions of other families are facing which is on december 15th we received our last deposit for having mm. a child mm-hmm. i got 250 dollars put in my bank account and that is the last time that's going to happen and barring some monumental shift in dc uh which looks you know less and less likely every day we go um, and at the same time i have to prepare for my student loan payments to resume next month so that's a pretty big swing for me but it's not even uh you know 
drop in the bucket compared to what many families are facing where, you know, you have perhaps $500 deposit being cut off and now looking at, you know, a, a four or $500 monthly student loan bill and, right. and looking at about a $1,000 swing in your budget, that's huge. Um, right as this Omicron variant is about to really kick some ass based on what you've been describing, because I, I think, uh, as you pointed out, that it's not necessarily right now that we're going to see how bad it is. It's going to be a month from now. Uh, after everyone's congregated, after it's really, really spread. And, um, you know, I, I think any sort of, you know, major shutdowns, quote unquote, like we experienced back in the early days, I, I find that highly unlikely because mm. they, they've pretty much proven they don't give a shit. Um, and, and, you know, there's no amount of death that's really going to uh, stop them from uh, closing the Walmarts and the ball games, uh, But... That's just going to be quite a crisis in our uh, across our economy and across our society, you know, to have a resurgent pandemic right at the time that people's vital lifelines for, for families are being cut off. And now you're adding in those student loans. You know, Sally Mae's calling you back. You know, she's she's a mm-hmm. scorned lover and she hadn't forgot about you and she will be calling you come February want her money back it, so and, and you it's, know it's just it's a perfect a, storm yeah no and it's such a good point too if you think about it those payments uh lifted half like it, it relieved poverty in 50 percent of, cut of child poverty in half yeah it cut tra- now that begs two questions one is well if that cut poverty in half then we can cut poverty 100 percent. right 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 like we can do it and then two, why are you reversing it? Because you're going to push people back in poverty. And remember, it's because they don't care. The elite in this country do not care about us. And let's be very, very clear about it. They have shown it. Climate change, gun violence, coronavirus. They do not care for ordinary workers like us. And remember, like fighting with Biden and driving with Biden, and all that stuff. And, he, you know, mm. Biden's a Scranton guy and he's a union guy, whatever. Where's the pro act? Like, right. let's go. You know, it was just like it was same thing with Obama. I'm going to put on a pair of comfortable walking shoes and hit the picket, picket lines. Line. Mm-hmm. Right. And we never saw those comfortable walking shoes and we never saw him out on a picket line. Right. So where are the, the elites do not care for us and they do not care for labor. But I will say this. I am somewhat slightly, slightly, slightly inspired and feel I well, I'm terribly inspired, but I feel slightly optimistic with the strikes that we're seeing right now and that we're seeing labor really rise up. I mean, obviously, what happened with Kellogg was devastating. Right. But I am inspired with what labor is, is doing right now and what would this so-called great resignation. And so mm-hmm. hopefully people will start to realize that we have one thing to fight against the elites. And that is if we coalesce and we withhold our labor, 
That is our strength. This is why they crush unions. This is why they don't want unions to be around. This is why they constantly are embattling us. They vaccines, abortions, climate change, whatever we can do to help split people, they will do because right. they don't want us to coalesce. Because when we coalesce, we will always beat the elites. We will always beat corporate America. So we have to find ways. But we are deeply, deeply deeply divided at this point. And if we yeah. can't even agree on wearing masks and if we can't agree on vaccines, I strongly fear for what the future of this country looks like because they have guns and they have a lot of mm. guns and they have a lot of ammunition. And we are starting to see people like Gosart and Bobert and Cawthorn and all of these crazies are starting to call first, quote unquote, second amendment solutions. And you know right, what that right. is. Like that's yeah. just code for go out and start shooting the liberals. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and Rittenhouse is, is being, I mean, he's oh. being turned into a hero. I mean, oh my God. But anyway, we're going <laughs> to right, go. Yeah, Sorry we're to go get us off track <laughs> on the uh, big picture, but, um, <laughs> Jacob, but I, yeah, do, well, I do know we have a couple specific COVID yeah, there, uh, vaccine questions. There was a good, there was a good transition there uh, from, from the masks and the vaccines to the next question. So, you know, I, so, um, I uh, I'll, I'll tell you my plans and and you can tell me how much you're judging me. So <laughs> I'm planning on there's a uh, I'm planning on going to a concert tonight in Birmingham um, that is going to be indoors. But if there is a vaccine, I'm going to judge you on who you're going to go see. I'm who going to see Lee see? Baines, Lee Baines and the Glory Fires. So okay. <laughs> he's good. Yeah, yeah. Going to see Lee Baines and the Glory Fires, but there it, you do have to be vaccinated to get in the door. Um, and I don't know if masks are mandatory. I, I probably not because there's a vaccine mandate. Like, what are uh, as an infectious yeah, disease I, specialist? Sure. Like, what is you. your and opinion on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and I'm a musician as well. So okay, I've been so playing. So. So, um, so I've been, you know, I live in New Orleans. I, I gig regularly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think, and last night, uh, you know, my wife is, uh, works for city hall. We went to, uh, a, a mayor's Christmas party. That's probably the last time I'm going to get into a room of people. Everybody had to be vaccinated to get in. Masking mm -hmm. was optional. Last night was probably the last time I'm going to probably go into a group of people until Omicron mm -hmm. passes. So if you wanted to go out tonight and do a concert, that's great. Uh, we canceled any gigs at bars moving forward, although vaccines are required and they're really good with checking vaccine status before entering a bar here in New Orleans, but we've canceled and we haven't booked any shows for the next six weeks. The band, like they're like, Oh, well we have an infectious diseases expert with us. Let's check with him and see what he says. And, I, and when I say, you know, we're all a bunch of, you know, 50 year old middle-aged dudes, you know, with hypertension and slightly overweight and all that stuff. So we're all, and even though we're all boosted, we're, we're very, very cognizant. So I, I would, you know, my wife and I usually travel for the holidays. We canceled all our plans. Um, we're not traveling. Uh, like I said, last night was probably the last time I'm going to step uh, into a, uh, a room with people. We don't go to restaurants. I, we don't go to bars. And again, I've stopped playing any gigs right now until after Omicron passes. Omicron is going to, uh, uh, is going to burn very, very brightly. And it's going to probably kind of like Delta live fast, die young. So I, I would I would get in your last like pre-COVID 
you know, like days, you know, do whatever it is that you need to do and then start kind of getting back into a 2020, 2021 mentality. So you think you think New Year's Eve is probably, you know, you you would be hesitant to like have a good time or, or you know, go oh, out. I, and, I would and party I would I would I would experience New Year's Eve outdoors. Okay. I would not I we're not going to do anything indoors with uh with large groups of people moving forward. Okay. Uh no what question. about what about the uh, oh, Omicron specifically? There's um I have read I haven't looked too much into it, but I have read that Omicron is potentially less um deadly than Delta or Alpha or Wild type. What what's the what's the truth value of that claim? So <clears throat> Um, there was a great study that just came out a couple of days ago um, that helps explain why Omicron is less virulent. The word that you're looking for there is called virulent. So okay. virulence or virulent. Virulent means uh, how severe a disease is. And so what this study out of Hong Kong showed was what they're able to do. These This research group is very famous for testing new pathogens against human tissue. So what they did is they took human tissue from the bronchi. So that that's the top part of your lung. So when you take the first breath, when you breathe, it goes right into the bronchi and then the bronchi splits and before it gets into the lungs. So the bronchi are the, it's the long tube before it gets into the lungs. When they looked at tissue, with uh, bronchial tissue versus deep lung tissue. What they found was that the virus was, as I mentioned earlier, 70 times more active in bronchial tissue so th than Delta, right? So what this explains is why it's so infectious. But the second thing that they found was that it is actually uh, the um, the the ability for it to grow in deep lung tissue is actually retarded. It's actually not, it does not grow well in deep lung tissue. So this helps to explain why clinically what we're seeing is that the virus is incredibly infectious, but very likely less virulent. So we are seeing, thankfully, because if this virus was highly infectious and highly deadly like Delta, mm -hmm. oh boy, I don't think that we're, I, I, listen, I work in hospitals. I, like we're tired. This has been right. two years. We're tired. We're tired and we're frustrated. We're frustrated because everybody that we see, right, is every time I see somebody, in, you know, they're unvaccinated for COVID and they're in the COVID units or in the ICU, right? The, it's always one of two things. I'm not anti-vax. I'm like, why didn't you get vaccinated then? I was mm -hmm. just waiting. Okay, well, now here you are. And then they're always going to ask you this. Well, can I get vaccinated now? No, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you have COVID. Like the whole point of the whole point is to prevent actually getting COVID. So um, we're we're very 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 tired. Doctors are frustrated. Nurses are frustrated, and this is what you're seeing. So fortunately, 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 what we are seeing. And now I'm going to speculate. If you don't mind me, let me sure. give me a minute and let me let me kind of explain what the what the COVID landscape is like right now. 
1918, we had the influence. I'm sure you've all are well aware of that. Now we, you know, two hundred and some odd years later, are still living in a post-influenza 1918 influenza era. The virus from 1918 still circulates today. And if you get a flu shot every year, that flu shot that you're getting has 1918 virus in it. So we're still living in post-1918 pandemic flu. We don't know it. You don't see it. You know, people like me will be the ones that, 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 that tell you about it. But what happened was that over time, generation after generation after generation. So we're talking, I'm going to define a generation for 20 years, generation after generation after generation, that virus becomes less virulent, less virulent, less virulent, but it's still going to stay. Now, what we've seen with coronavirus is that each variant has become more infectious and more virulent. Now, we haven't seen that before. Usually viruses become more infectious or they become less, or they become more virulent, but they never become more infectious and more virulent. This is the first time that we've ever seen a virus become more infectious and more virulent. And I hope, this is me speculating, me crossing my fingers, crossing my toes, that I think what we're gonna start to see is that Omicron is gonna start the, the beginning of the virus becoming more infectious and less virulent. And what the virus is ultimately going to evolve into is learning how to live with humans without killing the host. So possibly what we're going to see is that this virus is going to eventually settle down. We're going to have coronavirus for the rest of our lives, right? And the lives of our generation after generation after generation, but it'll be more like the common cold. It'll be more like Mm -hmm. influenza. And that's what I'm hoping now we, this is our first virus, like our first variant that's less virulent. So we need to wait for two or three more before we can definitively make those statements. But I do believe and I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful that we will move into a period where we will see less virulence uh, with this virus as as it evolves into a human host. Do you think that as the case rates increase for Omicron that we will actually see death rates decrease when compared no. to similar no. you you think no. that it's it's less virulent but it's still it's still virulent yes. enough that okay yes uh, because we're going to because just because of the math because you're going to get knock off more people because you're seeing such high levels of infectiousness, you're going to see increases in mortality, but you're going to see less severity of disease overall. So if you look at, uh, I check the New York Times every morning uh, and I look at their maps and, uh, and their graphs, we are seeing increases in, uh, in both uh, mortality and hospitalizations right now. Now, I don't know if that's Delta or Omicron. I think it's probably still um, uh, Delta, but there we will see something shift when Omicron really hits uh, 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 the U.S. heavy duty. But I think that overall there is going to be less virulence. Now, remember, who is Omicron going to affect? It's going to affect those that are most uh, un, um, that uh, are unvaccinated. It's going to hit those people who had COVID in the past and are unvaccinated because reinfection with Omicron is almost certainly a thing. Uh, Cornell University this week shut down almost 900 cases of uh, of students and they were all fully 
vaccinated. They had 900 cases. So we're going to see those people who are at highest risk, elderly, obesity, pregnant women, that sort of stuff. So that that's a good, um, you know, the the next question that we had came from uh, came from Ben. Actually, he's our um, he's the owner of Spice Radio here, and he had uh, he was wondering, you know, um, since we don't currently have you know the va- vaccine numbers that we need, what will the unvaccinated population eventually like? diminish from death and sickness and or are we going to be having like a huge wave of cases among the unvaccinated every single year yeah it so it's a really really good question and let me first say that nobody has an answer because you know you're asking me to predict the future right right so (laughs) but and but i've been sitting here predicting the future so it's a fair question to ask right that one i don't know except to say that i think yes I think, yes, the 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 we will see um, th- there's a lot of uh, human wood left to burn. And that human wood are those people who are unvaccinated or vaccinated, but not yet boosted. So if you are unvaccinated, like completely unvaccinated, you have a, the likelihood of you getting Omicron is incredibly high. The likelihood mm-hmm. of you going on to uh, uh, get long COVID is incredibly high. And the likelihood, especially if you fall into the category of being obese, of uh, having chronic health conditions, of being elderly, we're defining elderly over the age of 60. If you fall into any of those categories, likelihood of severity disease is very, very high. And what we will see moving forward, and the the the, and I think that the owner of the radio station asked a great question: Will we continue to see um, COVID to be a pandemic of those that are unvaccinated? Without question, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, Can I oh, yeah, say ahead, something there? Obviously, not being an epidem- epidemiologist like yourself, but I'm just my wheels are turning, and I'm thinking, okay, if we have this large chunk of the population here domestically that's unvaccinated, primarily by choice, not entirely. Uh, of course, abroad we have entire regions that are largely unvaccinated, primarily due to access, uh, and you know this is. A broader issue of imperialism and, and intellectual copyrights, etc. But my point being, okay, so we've got this chunk of folks here and there. They're unvaccinated, and you know it's going to be able to spread much more through them. It's going to take much more of them down, obviously. But what I'm wondering, and what it, it looks like to me, is that the more there's that like group in which the virus can incubate, and then you know, create new variants? Is is that something that uh, we have to be concerned about, that as long as there's this, you know, rump of the population, basically, that is sort of opening themselves up to coronavirus, that, you know, the danger is maybe the next Omicron is just as infectious, but much more deadly, perhaps. Does that make sense? I mean, because I'm not a science person. I don't... I don't really know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) You're asking the 100% perfect question. So this is something that I get on my soapbox and yell about all the time, is that we have not allowed this vaccine to be distributed and manufactured around the world. Who created this vaccine? The U.S. government. Who paid for that? 
our taxes. But it is a classic, classic American move. Because remember, the business of America is business. And so if at any time the American government can hand over things to corporate America and 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 hurt itself in the process, they will do that. Right. That's that's what we do. Like, for example, Medicare Part D is basically allows for uh, uh, big pharma to charge anything it wants to the American government. And they cannot by law negotiate prices. That was part of what the Build Back Better was, was to help you know negotiate prices. And we can't do it. So what did we do? So the American government, basically, uh, the NIH invented the what became the Moderna vaccine, right? We turned around and gave it to this company or sold it to the company Moderna. We could have negotiated here. You can make your first $20 billion, but then we will also then at that time release the intellectual property of it uh, and allow other countries uh, to uh, continue you know, to, to use the vaccine. But we did not do that. So what's going to happen? There's no question in my mind. There's no question in my mind. I thought of it, and I'm just a humble epidemiologist living in New Orleans, Louisiana, right? There's no question that very, very, very smart scientists that work at the Moderna or Pfizer or what have you, they knew good and well that variants are going to continue to pop off all over the world. They knew. They know. They know, and they still withheld it. And this goes back to the overall theme of what we've been talking about is that we as Americans need to recognize and we need to wake up right from this 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 uh, gaslighting kind of uh, uh, dream that we live in, that we're the best and we're the greatest and that we care for everybody and human rights and social justice and all of this crap, because that's quite frankly, that's BS. And we know that we should have been out front vaccinating the globe. Right. If we really cared for people, if we really cared for people, because we know there's a number of studies that show that it's the immunosuppressed who are uh, creating the variants. And this Omicron is thought to have originated from somebody who has HIV, has end stage HIV that's not treated. I'm an HIV provider. I I do HIV medicine. That's my specialty. And the fact that uh, and I know the immunosuppression you have when you have AIDS, we refer to that as AIDS. AIDS. And I know what that immunosuppression is like. And so the fact that we have people who are unvaccinated in this, think about this. And the other thing too, the, the person who asked the question, is your name Adam? I, I, I can't yeah, see you. Yeah. I, I, uh, sorry, yeah, Adam, I'm, I'm behind the scenes today. No, no, no. You, 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 you said something that I really want to highlight, which is that think about Think about from the perspective of an un-American, right? So let's look at like, you know, somebody in Africa or somebody in, in, the, in the Middle East or what have you. They can't get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. They don't have access to vaccines. Less than 2% of Africa as a continent has been vaccinated. But yet the, all the clinical trials happened in Africa. Think about that. And that goes back to the imperialism that you were talking about a moment ago. But imagine, imagine the hubris they think about us when they're like, mm-hmm. oh, there's people, there's Americans that are not choosing to get vaccinated and we're right. desperate to be vaccinated. Think, I mean, just it, it, it is so 
the hubris of the American experiment is just beyond. It, it's it, it 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 just leaves me scratching my head, you know. And so, if we want to see this pandemic go away, we would vaccinate the globe. We would uh, uh, we would eliminate this trips waiver. Uh, and we would we would move forward by uh, lifting the intellectual property. You know, it, during the two, early two thousands, the the so called aughts. Uh, HIV was a devastating disease in Thailand, in India, in Brazil, right? All three of those countries are massive biotech countries. And what those three countries did was just basically take the HIV medications that were coming out of America and they just patent or not they were like screw it we're going to make our own generics of it and you had the various uh, uh companies that were that threatened they did they sued these countries but then eventually dialed back because they realized that was a bad look for them and now you don't hear about hiv in brazil or in india or in thailand as we did in the early aughts you know why because those governments actually came up with those generics and that's how those uh, uh and that's how they're managing hiv in those countries and the same thing needs to happen now and until well, and it happens thing- we're going to yeah, well, the same thing needs to happen now. Even like like we were talking about earlier, even just the self preservation, like the system is un- <laughs> unable to even self preserve. Like it would be 100%. good for us 100%. if we 100%. vaccinated the whole world. I mean, hundred you know, percent. Um, what about in- information on the vaccine for children under six? What's the latest there? So that I'm an adult doctor, uh, and so I'm not 100 uh, percent up on uh, yeah, you know pediatric uh, vaccinations. We do know that they're safe, uh, but quite frankly, uh, the one thing I will say is that the Omicron variant has seen an increase in pediatric hospitalizations by 20 percent mm. in South Africa. Wow. So under the age of 18, there has been an increase in 20%. So this virus may disproportionately affect the youngest amongst us, but uh, I, I am very, very sorry to say that I am not a pediatric doctor and I don't, I, I, I don't focus a hundred percent on, on, on sure. peds. Uh, I, I focus a little bit more on the, on the, the larger and the adult population. So I, I, I can't answer with the same level of, uh, of, uh, of uh, authenticity that I can with your other questions. Sure. What about um, at home testing for family gatherings? We had one question that um, uh, it's a great question. Know. Yep. And, and I, and we do it ourselves here at the, at the dairy and Elliott household. So, um, I, the Bionex test is $23 at a pharmacy. It, there's two tests in them. Um, they're, they're somewhat difficult. Uh, you have to, you know, you have to kind of read the instructions. Don't just open the box, but those are antigen testing. I think that if you're going to get together for holidays, I think it's a good idea that everybody should be boosted and would take an antigen test and that they can show that they're negative. I think that if you did that, I think that your holiday gathering would be safe. Um, it, it, even if you weren't boosted, if you were vaccinated, um, and 
if you're not vaccinated at all, and I know that we're talking to the, your, your audience is, uh, is in Alabama and is, you know, is largely a conservative audience. If you're completely unvaccinated, I think that, and you're going to get together with other people for the holidays, New Year's, I think that the Bionex test is sufficient enough to uh, if everybody's negative, that you should feel comfortable gathering in that in that group environment. Okay, that's a great um, question. I'm glad you asked. What about mixing and matching for the boosters? What's the? That's a great idea. Mix and match. I I got boosted with this. I got Moderna, and then it just happened that I just got a I got a third Moderna dose. The studies have shown that whether you mix or match, the level of immunity is the same. Gotcha. Can I, uh, and, and, including Johnson and Johnson. So if you got a okay. Johnson and Johnson and then you got an MRNA vaccine, either one, you I, I would, I would avoid getting a second Johnson and Johnson vaccine. I would recommend that if you got a Johnson Johnson, only 5% of America got Johnson Johnson. But if you did get a Johnson Johnson vaccine, I would recommend getting boosted with an MRNA vaccine. And it doesn't matter which one you get. Thank you. That was my question. I'm one of the strange 5% that ended up with the J&J, and you never hear discussions publicly about, you know, which shot are you supposed to get? Does it matter which shot you get? Uh, so thank you for saying that. You answered my question, and uh, I'm sure I can't be the only one. Right, right. right. Um, I think that... That was uh oh we had one more question this is the last one what about what's the latest information on on masking is is that is that effective how should we mask when should we mask etc um the the, <laughs> the science is very very clear you know here's here's my phone guys I'm going to show you my phone right here's my phone what were to happen if I were to let go of it right? It's going to fall to the center of the earth. Okay. And the thing called gravity. Okay. So masking and the science behind masking is sufficient. And it is clear that masking prevents the transmission of the virus. And it also prevents the acquisition of the virus. I, when I mask, I mask with a surgical mask and then I usually wear a cloth mask over it. That's just my mm. personal preference. A KN95 is fine. When I travel, uh, so I've had to travel and, and fly. I usually will triple mask. I'll wear a cloth. I will wear a surgical mask, a KN95 or an N95, and then a cloth mask over it. So I think it's important. Masking is important. I think that we're going to start to see more masking moving forward, especially as Omicron uh, uh, approaches us. Dr. Derry, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, and I love your show, and thank you guys for for giving us content at WHIV. We're so grateful for what the, the things that you do. Thank you so much. The Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. 